Uh, uh, before we get into all of the craziness uh, for this week's podcast, uh, um, I am that Chris Gore. I am going to be doing Pod Crash live at iOS on Saturday, September 22nd. I'm going to be crashing a podcast called Proudly Resents, hosted by Adam Spiegelman. You've heard me on his podcast a couple times. We're going to be talking about the movie Heartbeeps with Andy Kaufman. It's going to be amazing. Some incredible special guests. So please come at uh, iOS. That's Saturday, September 22nd. You can get Tickets at ioimprov.com slash west. Uh, I'm going to do an awkward introduction since you're sitting here. There's only the two of us and then we'll talk. Ready when you are. Great. This is Adam Spiegelman. You listen to Proudly Resents, ProudlyResents.com. If you listen to the show, then you probably watch our guests play Tom Servo on Mystery Science Theater 3000. We say smart-ass things to stupid-ass movies. Now he joins some of the gang for the very funny riff tracks. And wrote the great book, A Year at the Movies, One Man's Film Going Odyssey. Riff Tracks is doing a live showing of Birdemic on October 25th. So, Kevin Murphy, thanks for coming on Proudly Resents. Now, Adam, that was a wonderful introduction. And you, 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 you thought it was going to sound all weird and clunky. And I thought it was smooth <laughs> and, and just cool and relaxed. And I know it sounds a little like morning. You know, you probably feel like you just got out of bed. But, but you're sounding great to me already. Uh, you know, Kevin, that's all I needed. You know what? That's it. The interview's over. That's all we need. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about uh, the Riff Tracks about Birdemic. What are you guys doing on October 25th? Well, um, this will be, I believe, number seven we've done with uh, Fathom Events um, of uh, doing uh, a live riff of a movie. Uh, this time, once again, we're at the Belcourt Theater in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a great theater, and Nashville audiences are so much fun and so cool that we keep going back there. Um, and then it is broadcast via satellite to over 550 theaters nationwide uh, who get to watch us uh, do the same thing live. Um, and it's great because it has this, um, since we're doing it in the Belcourt, which is about, I think, about 400 people so it's a great intimate crowd it's like a you know a good stand-up club crowd uh-huh. size um so everybody gets into it and we can really sort of interact with the audience a little bit and i think people will go and see it live get that same feeling because the way that it's shot um gives it that club feeling to it so so it's really fun i think for the people in the theater and also people who are seeing it live now birdemic we chose in particular because it's become a Oh, it's almost like a mascot for us. You know, there was the room, which we liked, but the room was, you know, creepy in ways that, that are still indescribable. <laughs> and uh, and Birdemic doesn't really have that creepiness. It has a sort of innocent, uh, good intention to it, which I really like. And at the same time, there is this shocking amount of ineptness that goes into making the film. And you combine those two, and, you know, we don't really... We're not as hard on the film, maybe. I mean, we still have a lot of fun with it, but we're not certainly not mean to the film because we seem to like all the people who made the film and who, and who are in it. The basic premise of Birdemic is um, James Wen, the uh, director, um, I think was in love with Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. So he wanted to um, shoot a film that was sort of maybe a, a tribute to that in some way. So he shot it in some of the same locations in Half Moon Bay and uh, the Bay Area in, in California. And, uh, but instead of having the birds just for no reason at all attack people randomly, um, he had them sort of dive bombing gas stations and oil refineries and there, there are exploding birds in this, in this film. Uh, and they, they dive bomb gas stations. And then there's a, a young couple who are running away from the birds. 
uh, very slowly, by the way. They don't really make a, a huge chase out of it. And, uh, and the birds are sort of like four-frame GIFs, you know, GIF animations. And that's as sophisticated as they get. So that's the combination of that is great. Yeah, the GIF is a pretty generous uh, <laughs> But it's an environmental film. It's about um, Yeah, it the has a heavy environmental a message to it. It's we're causing the birds to die on the gas stations in, uh, in the Bay Area. It, it came out maybe five years ago, so it's not uh-huh. like you're doing one of those old B movies. But why did you pick that film? Well, I'd say listen to the first five minutes of the dialogue and uh, and and see how it um, it plays out. And and it's you, you say to yourself, my God, somebody actually wrote this down and had actors say this stuff. And and they didn't really have actors say this stuff. They had people who were playing roles. They, they, I don't know if you'd really call them actors. They're not actors. No, this is like no, that's no. barely a gif. That's barely an actor, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, the lead fella, he uh, seems to have this extraordinary amount of luck in his life. At the same time, his new girlfriend has an extraordinary amount of luck in his life. Um, his company gets uh, sold for, I think, the, the exact round number of $10 million. And then he makes a sale for a $1 million. <clears throat> and then he gets his new startup company funded for $10 million. And in the meantime, his girlfriend, who showed up for a photo shoot in what looks like the back of a hair salon or a no, nail no, it's salon. A, it's a one-hour photo mat. Oh, it's, well, that's right. <laughs> so it's like she's going to work. Like, he couldn't think of where yeah. a model goes to the office. That's but where they go. Me, it was, yeah, it was like one of those places where they combine hair, tanning, and and uh, and shooting your photo spread. Right. Um, and, uh, and she gets an offer to be the new uh, top model for Victoria's Secret, just out of the blue. And all these things sort of combine in this in this perfect storm of of really sort of giddy dumbness. Um, and it's you know it's nice to look at actually. There's some beautiful seascapes and things like that when the you know the gift birds aren't uh, flying in front of the screen. And lines just come out of nowhere, and you say to yourself, "What the hell would possibly get into this guy's head that he thinks he has to have that line right now?" Well, I think it's his big thing, and a lot of like a lot of these movies we talk about on this show is he's not. English is his second language, so he's writing a movie what he thinks an all-American person would be like. Like The Room, his name is Johnny, the most right. American name, and he's writing all these American dialogue. So it's these true. poor people in the film are say, speaking like somebody, they couldn't be whiter, and then they're speaking like someone who's not, whose English is a second language. It does have the feeling that the script was perhaps typed in English and then uh, Google translated into Vietnamese and then Google <laughs> translated back into English and then given to the actors, that sort of thing. Right. Now, how do you, what's the process of riff track? Like, for this film, what did you guys do to, to write for the stuff for the show? <clears throat> well, um, it used to be uh, at Mystery Science Theater, we would have a whole big room full of uh, writers and we'd just throw our lines at the screen and it was up to whoever was typing at the time to get that all down. And that's fun, but it's really inefficient, <clears throat> and um, and a lot of lines that could be good get lost that way. So what we found is we have five writers. It's Bill Corbett, Mike Nelson, and I, plus Connor Lastelka, and uh, Sean Thomason, two, our young, two young Turk writers who are very funny and, and keep us from feeling terribly old. Um, we all sit down with a chunk of the film, and we draft it, and we look at it, and we spend, say oh, probably a week with just a 20-minute chunk of a film. Then we compile the film, and we get together and review it and and do it together, and that's when we get the writing room flavor uh, into the draft of the film. And then we uh, go over it one more time together as a rehearsal, tweak it, go into the studio, record it, and, uh, and Bob's your uncle. That's how it goes. 
So, no, it's, for, it's, it's sort of the same for, for Demick, except since it's a live show, we have to sort of tailor the uh, uh, script to a live performance because we're allowing room, God willing, for laughter. And there's a lot of places where that seems obvious. Oh, we're going to have a big joke here. Oh, this one's going to be sort of a titter. Oh, this one's going to be a warm chuckle. This is going to be a head scratcher. This is going to be a groaner, that sort of thing. We always get that wrong. So we end up having to adjust on the fly as we go. But that's the basic philosophy behind what we do when we do it as a live show, is to allow a little bit more of that audience interaction, which there's going to be. Well, this movie has a lot of dead time. <laughs> I don't know. It just I mean, it's great that you guys are there to kind of, at the very least, fill all the real-time driving that it has yeah. in this movie. Well, yeah. one of the hallmarks of bad cinema for me is a lot of dead air on the screen. The director just seems to think that if you point the camera at something and shoot it and then put it in the film, then that will, you know, actually become part of the film. Don't realize that it's just like, you know, it's worse than... Um, Four minutes, 33 seconds, the musical performance piece, because uh, truly nothing happens. So, yeah, we, I mean, it's, it's in a way, I don't mind this um, because it's not as bad as, say, uh, Manos was. Uh-huh. The driving scenes in Manos just make me want to kill myself. That was the movie, the most famous movie you guys did. And, uh, and here, it's, it's not quite so bad. It's not as bad. Is Manos still the worst one? Oh, I hate that film. I hate that <laughs> film with the heat of 10,000 suns, a fiery passion. I really, I think there's something creepy and possibly, I don't know if the guy who did it was just momentarily possessed, um, but something in that film just gets under my skin. And it's like, I, you know, even though I performed it and people love it and we had a great show with it, for me, it's like a rash. Is that, which, which films do people talk to you about the most? Oh, Manos is definitely high on the list. That's the one. People just love it. You know, they love what we do to it. I think that's what it ends up being. It, um, from the Mystery Science Theater, theater era, I'd say Manos is, is up on the uh, list. There's another um, one that we did that is sort of freewheeling um, uh, space opera um, called Space Mutiny, uh, which is a huge favorite among our fans. And that's mainly because we made this list of names for the hero of the thing, you know, like Bolt, Iron Rod, um, blast hard cheese and we just kept throwing these names out there and so that's actually we made it onto a, a t-shirt where there's i think like 30 names and they just run down the t-shirt um <clears throat> so that's another one of the favorites from the from the riff tracks era um of the videos that we do uh, of the commentaries we do because riff tracks is half doing commentaries that you then add to the film that we can't get the rights to do um I'd say the biggest one are the Twilight series. They're just, people just love to see us make fun of the Twilight series. Honest to God, I think more boyfriends are now watching that movie with their girlfriends because they can have their earbuds in uh -huh. and listen to our commentary while this absurdity is going out on the screen. And then among the videos on demand, that's the other part of Riff Tracks is um, <clears throat> we sell these completely packaged together things. Um, Boy, we've had so many. I'm almost going to have to look at the, the website to figure out which ones are, are selling right now. Um, one of my favorites is, uh, well, there's a Braxis Guardian of the Universe with Jesse Ventura. Sure. We uh, did one recently called Revenge of Dr. X. We did a Mexican wrestler hero film recently, um, which I thought was great fun, Neutron and the Death Robots. So I highly recommend people to pick that up. I just always love the conceit that... This shirtless, masked, muscular man can walk into the 
office of the president of the country or the chief of police and just have a casual conversation with them. It just it's a wonderful premise to start with. And yeah, they have no idea. What's the difference when you're writing for um, a blockbuster like Twilight and a B movie like Manos? Well, the simple answer to that is that um, these days uh, directors tend to pack too much of everything into their films. Um, <clears throat> too much dialogue, too much action. It's like plot and character don't have room anymore because people are talking and and doing things that aren't necessarily germane to the plot, like running away from cars uh-huh. or or vampires or or whatever it is they're running away from. They're running away from it. Now, it's not really plot. It's just action. Um, I guess that's what defines an action film. Uh, and in the, the older films, we find that there's a lot more breathing room in them. That's people actually left time for lines to be heard and then acknowledged and then responded to. Um, and in the particularly bad films, they leave a whole lot of room. I mean, room that you could actually parallel park a car <laughs> in the time that it takes for somebody to react to a line in the case of Burdamic. Or oh, the same with Twilight, too. I mean, that whole scene where she's depressed that her boyfriend dumps her and the seasons change and she's lying in bed. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, that is taking it a little too far. So that was great because they do... Uh, Actors quite often never finish a line in the Twilight film. You, did you really think I would? And that's it. They, they never get any farther than that. It's very mammoth. Well, take a ten-minute gap and then get back to the line. Betray you? You know, so you could go out and get a cup of coffee while you wait for the guy to finish his line. We have some uh, questions from listeners. Okay. John Kelmer wanted to know: um, Do you ever felt you guys were too snarky to a film? Did you ever feel bad about something you said? Um, you know, not at Rift Tracks. I think we've sort of learned to temper what we do. And, uh, <clears throat> we also, I've always thought that if a director's bad, okay, call the director out on being bad. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, even if it's an independent director, I know that they poured their heart and soul into it, <laughs> but anybody who assumes the role of director is already departing on some sort of ego trip, especially if they're sort of an independent filmmaker director. They're not doing this for the benevolence of humankind. They're doing it because they want to direct a film. So <clears throat> I don't think it's bad to call people out on, you know, inept directing in particular. Um, uh, let's see. There was one film, this independent film that we did called Time Chasers that was uh, shot in West Rutland, Vermont. And I do think that these guys wanted to go out there and make as good a film as they could, and they involved the community, and they financed it independently and all these things that you're absolutely supposed to do when you, you know, make an independent film and want to and want to make it completely out of the sight of the Hollywood system, which I applaud. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't a very good film. And during while the credits were rolling and uh, we were making fun of the credits and everybody in them. And then one of the last credits thanked the citizens of West Rutland, Vermont. And uh and Servo's response to that was, go to hell, citizens and officials of West Rutland, Vermont. And I always felt a little bit bad about that because they really did work hard and they had a good time on that one. And they had no idea. They didn't yeah, pick so, the script. You know, now we just pick cities at random to make fun of. Like, uh, uh, oh, what's the one that we've used lately? Um, a lot of cities in Texas for some reason. Fort Worth in particular. I don't know why. We just, you know, it's just like throwing it at a dartboard. It just happened to be Fort Worth. Do you hear from any of the towns ever? We, I get Twitters and emails and, uh, and Facebook uh, posts from people in Fort Worth saying, hey, cut it out now, will ya? But they take it in the spirit in which it is given. It's just totally random. We need to pick a city. It could be Peoria. It could be Boise. Just happened to land on Fort Worth. Uh, are you, um, Don McCoy wants to know if you're working on a new book because he loves uh, a year at the movies. 
Well, thank you. Um, and it's funny. It just uh, this last week it was pointed out to me that uh, that book came out ten years ago. Um, <clears throat> so wow, first of all, and second, I have been writing a little bit some essays. I think just right now um, on what I found that has changed for the better and changed for the worse in those ten years uh, for just the film going experience in general. Um, and I'm think? starting. I'm starting to research and draft a novel at the same time, and I won't tell you any more about that until it actually becomes something that has some shape and form to it. Give us a spoiler. Anything. For the novel? Yeah, anything. Is there oh, a... somebody dies. What? Okay. Come on. So, somebody dies. That's right. Oh, you ruined somebody it. runs away from somebody. There is action in this, too. Oh, no. You've given away too much. I'm not going to read it now. What do you, <laughs> what has changed since the last book? And uh, you went to a movie a day, right? And, right. I went to a theater um, every day uh, and watched a movie every day for an entire year. Um, what has changed, I think, for the better is um, number one, IMAX is finally starting to come out of the closet. When one of the things I had in my book was actually that I believe the. Um, the title of the chapter was me to IMAX make more movies because when I was watching it, it was still nothing but bears and whales, you know, and, and flights through the grand Canyon, which are great. And they're a good use of, of IMAX. Um, but at that time there was no Batman. There were no big feature films that had been used that had used the IMAX format to, uh, to, you know, really punch things home. And now they're starting to do that. And I think, great. I mean, if you want to have a big action film, um, it's a great format to do it in, but I'm also, I'm still waiting for a really terrific film to be made in the IMAX format. And I don't think that's happened. IMAX hasn't seen its Lawrence of Arabia yet. Um, but I think that may come someday. That, that is actually one of the biggest changes. Um, when I first started writing the book was when, um, uh, digital projection was just starting to, um, DLP had, uh, just started being used. And the first film I saw using DLP, the digital projection technology was Shrek and I'd never seen a sharper image on a movie screen. It was, um, <clears throat> in New York, um, at the Ziegfeld theater, which is a huge screen. I don't know if you've ever seen that auditorium, big auditorium, sure. huge screen. And I'd never seen an image that sharp on a movie screen. And I thought, okay, this is a little weird. It looks a little computery and a little freaky. And it's like looking at the world's biggest LCD display. Um, <clears throat> I think that, I don't know, filmmakers are learning to use digital technology better. So that, and they're, they're still trying, it's funny because there's a lot of money and resources spent to make digital technology look more like film. Uh -huh. And me, I'd be happy if people just continued to shoot on film in order, first of all, to keep that actual physical medium uh, in the cinema world. And also because you can do all you want to video to make it look like film and it still looks like video. I heard about all the problems that... Um, that the Hobbit production crew was having with their red cameras is that it was just, I don't know if they were doing it at the wrong scan rate or the frame rate was wrong, but it was looking a lot like video when they were getting the composites back. And I thought, Ooh, I don't want that. I want it to look like a film. I want movies to look like movies still. Cause I'm an old man and I can do that and I can rant and tell kids to get off my lawn. I just feel like an old man. When you look at the TV, the TV, you look at the TV <laughs> and the, well, you look at the TV and it, it looks like, like Pirates of the Caribbean looks like a video. Yeah, but it's the the actual movie shot on film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it, it's weird. It shouldn't it shouldn't do that. I mean, you want a movie to look like a movie. It's I, I know that Lawrence of Arabia I think is going to go through another theatrical re release uh, once again, and 
I hope they don't digi the thing all to hell because that's that just as far as sitting down and watching a piece of cinema, that's still one of my favorite movie theater experiences. Well, in the new version, actually, uh, Greedo shoots first. <laughs> so, so look out for that. Uh, Art Wheeler wants to know, uh, would you come over his house and watch Manos with him? No. No, okay. Absolutely <laughs> hell no. He's got a nice place. I'm sure he does. Oh, yeah. I'm not coming over. All right. Um, and then John wants to know how quickly do you get sick of the, uh, the theme song to MST 3000? Um, you know, it's sort of, I, I let it pass after a while because I was, um, when I was producing the show, I'd sit down and watch them from start to finish. And of course I'd skip over that part usually. <laughs> um, and, uh, I still do, uh, you know, it, there's, there's not a whole lot to it. I think it's a total of three chords. Right. Um, uh, and so, yeah, but but for people, it, it, I love it. It's a thing that gets people charged up, ready to go to see the show. It's it's an opening theme, and it's a shame that they, you know that shows don't do that very much anymore. Um, it 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 shifts you from whatever you were doing before into okay, now here is your show. Okay, we got you for this amount of time. Sit down, enjoy it. You're in our hands. Um, take come fly with us, as it were. Right, right. Really, just relax. How did you get involved in the show in the beginning? I was working at um, KTMA, the scrappy little independent station uh, in um, in the Twin Cities. It was not a cable station like some people say. It was a UHF station, which at that time was almost as bad. You know, it was up in the 20s. It was Channel 23. My uh, work partner there, Jim Mallon, and I had been doing comedy on there. We'd been Actually, we did a news parody about, uh, uh, oh, six, seven years before The Daily Show ever showed up. And, uh, and, but it was hard for us to do our jobs and that, and, and we wanted to get other people from the comedy community involved. And at that time, the Twin Cities had a huge, very successful, very popular comedy community. So we started inviting some folks in and Jim had met Joel Hodgson, um, cause they had shared a warehouse space. They both had studios in this warehouse space, downtown Minneapolis, and had gotten to know each other a little bit. And, and Jim had said to Joel, you know, if you ever have any ideas for a fun TV show, we've got this big sandbox. We essentially had this TV station that was sitting in the bottom of the ratings. We had production equipment in a studio and, uh, we had our spare time. Um, so we just had this license to go play in the sandbox and do whatever the station manager said, Oh, you can do whatever you want with the stuff in the off time. He'd walk into the studio, see what we were doing and jingle his change and shake his head and chuckle and leave again. And Joel came in <clears throat> with a, a sort of a set of sketches and the rough premise of what the thing was going to be. And, uh, and we got to work on shaping that into a TV show from there. And that's what eventually became Mystery Science Theater. It didn't take too long. And we followed Joel's lead on all of the weirdness and creative uh, goofiness that went into the thing and sort of tried to make that real. And Trace and Josh Weinstein, who was the first Tom Servo, got involved. And I was I uh, uh, built sets, uh, decorated sets, did the lighting, uh, did the camera work, uh, was involved in the editing. And uh, so I was on the technical side of it for a long time. And it wasn't until the show got picked up on network that I started writing for it. I felt like I had something to offer. So I timidly offered myself as a writer and went in there and they must have liked me because I ended up being Tom Servo in the second season. Yeah, how did you end up doing Tom Servo? And why didn't you uh, do it right off the bat? Well, I think, uh, well, Josh starts, Josh created the character at KTMA at this local TV station. He uh, picked up the, uh, the puppet that was eventually going to become Tom Servo and started voicing it. And that was why um, Joel had called him in to do the show. 
And, um, and so he created it. He sort of shaped Tom into this, you know, over puffed little guy with probably a short man complex, um, and, uh, a chick magnet, at least a self-described chick magnet. And so I sort of took it from there when Josh left after the first season and I tried to just build on what it was that Josh had, uh, um, put into the puppet. I tried to make Servo maybe a little bit more, um, Oh, I don't know. Have a little bit more self-loathing or just, you know, occasionally after puffing himself up, hating himself, he was a lot more prone to both singing and crying when he got into my hands, which <laughs> I, I don't think that really describes me, but it might. It's more about you than him. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing people ask me about Tom. And I always say that Tom wasn't me and I wasn't Tom. And it's true because Tom was an amalgamation of character that came out of the writing room. He was this character that was built by writers, really good, really funny writers. Some of them still, you know, at the top of their games uh, all over the country and in different parts of, uh, of comedy. And so it was great. It was this wonderful character that was written by all these great writers. And, and all I had to do was stand out of the way, add my voice and action to the thing, and then the character would come alive through the gifts and talent of all these writers. Of the one to ten, how little did Frank Conniff do? Oh, Frank did tons. He was a great writer. So nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Frank was great. I love Frank. Um, Frank had, you know, his character was. Well, the thing about Frank's character is that it was sort of a slightly amplified, very slightly science fictiony version of actual Frank. Um, what you saw when you saw TV's Frank was, you know, real life's Frank at the same time. He, he pretty much talked the same way. Um, he didn't, you know, he was never a minion, but he was a great second banana. He was exactly the kind of person you'd want to have as a second banana. I've, I've met Andy Richter, uh, before, and I've noticed that Andy and Frank have a lot of things in common, which I think is, is really sort of great. It's, it's, it, you know, it takes a certain special breed of person to do that second banana role and they both do it and own it are very proud of it and they should be. What is it that makes a good second banana? Um, being both proactive so that you prompt the, um, you know, the punchline, you know, be a good straight man and also be able to deliver a good punchline. It's a combination of the two things. You're never really the star, um, but you also are critical to that, you know, lead person, that star being a star and, and you make it happen. The show is still popular and why do you think it lasted, you know, so long on the air? What was the, why do people love it so much? Uh, I think several reasons in an age when everything, uh, at least for a long time, uh, was shot in front of a green screen. Um, even though a large majority of the, of the show, our show was shot using a, a chroma key. Uh, it was the theater seats thing. It was a silhouette. But when we came to the satellite itself, it was all hand, handmade. Most of our effects were recorded in the camera instead of being done in post. That was mainly a function of the fact that we couldn't record it. So it always had a sort of low-tech, handmade quality to it that I think visually people identified to. It was also a, a show in the way that an old Saturday morning pajama show was. You know, like I said, the theme song, hey kids, plop down in front of the TV and, and grab your bowl of cereal and, uh, and come watch the show with us. I think that was definitely built into the way that, that the show worked. And, and the final thing is that people to this day still love to talk back to their media. I mean, they, whether it's uh, a YouTube thing 
uh, a podcast. It doesn't matter. I, you know, people will end up yelling at the screen. You know, sports fans have been doing that ever since the first, you know, baseball game was broadcast. Um, so people like really, they, they, they do that. We just try to do it in a way that's sort of cohesive and, 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 uh, and hopefully funny. And, uh, and so we, we allow people that catharsis without them actually having to come up with the lines themselves. And I think people respond to that. That's great. Thank you so much for doing the show. Hey, my pleasure. And Thanks uh, for having me on. Yeah, so rifttracks.com is at the website to find out about where to see Birdemic live. You can go to rifttracks.com, uh, and you can also go to fathomevents.com. Fathom, F-A-T-H-O-M, events, E-V-N-T-S.com. Either place, that will get you to Rifttracks live, Birdemic. Great. Yeah, it's a great film. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Kevin. Here. Adam, that, that, we're, we're out of time for this interview.